Comedian Jeff Foxworthy rose to prominence in the 90s with his humorous critique uh, of Southerners as he joked about things that he found strange and peculiar about Southern culture. Uh, As a boy from Georgia, his catchphrase, you might be a redneck if, became an opener to many jokes where he poked fun at the people that he encountered. What you might not have known is that Mr. Foxworthy didn't only have things to say about Southerners. I actually found some jokes online that were attributed to Mr. Foxworthy where he shared his thoughts on how to know if you've met someone from Alaska. And I will say he wasn't too far off. So let me know if some of these hit too close to home. If you know several people who have hit a moose more than once, you may live in Alaska. If you've worn shorts and a parka at the same time, you may live in Alaska. And I personally, I felt a little targeted with that one, I'm not going to lie. If you carry jumper cables in your car and your wife knows how to use them, you may live in Alaska. So shout out to strong, capable Alaskan women with that one. If you designed your kid's Halloween costume to fit over a snowsuit, you may live in Alaska. If you measure distance in hours, you may live in Alaska. And finally, if you know all four seasons, almost winter, winter, still winter, and road construction, you may live in Alaska. Alaska is a unique place, and living here leaves an indelible mark on you. So if you're out traveling, you're in the real world, you're at an airport somewhere else and you cross paths with another Alaskan, you kind of do the the, the up-down look and you know in your heart, they're one of us, right? (laughs) How do you know? What do you know? Well, you see them, you're at the airport and you're like, well, their carry-on luggage is an ice chest and they're wearing extra tough, so this might just be one of us. You see an Alaskan and you know one when you see one. We all know it because we're that too. Now, why do I bring this up other than the pure joy that I find in making fun of Alaskans? Why would I bring that up this morning? And it's this, there are certain things that leave a distinctive mark on us. They are supposed to identify us as one of those. My question for us this morning is, has the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for you left its mark on you in a noticeable way so that those who come into contact with you see it in you? Is your life shaped by what God has done that you live in a way that people can't help but see that you've been transformed by the gospel? Now, we've been in the book of Romans um, for a good chunk of time. Uh, this is our, actually our 19th sermon in the, the Roman series that started back in the month of September, which is back when you could touch dirt, so it's been a little while. Uh, but Romans is a notoriously theologically heavy book, and we have covered a lot on our journey to get where we are today. We've discussed God's wrath, we've debated the goodness of the law, righteousness by faith, discussed original sin through Adam, how to live life in the spirit, the nature of God's sovereignty, the salvation of Israel, and many, 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 many more topics. Now, if you like to think about and discuss theology, you have been on cloud nine for the last 18 weeks. Pastor Eric has been throwing around nine-syllable words and discussing dead theologians like nobody's business. And, and, and you just knew that Romans was written for you. But I would say that is not all that Romans was written for. 
See, Romans wasn't just written to fuel debates between people that wear tweed jackets and have elbow patches. It was written so that everyday Christians would know how to live in a world where the theology of Romans is true. So we get to make an important turn in our journey through Romans from these heavily theological discussions to these heavily practical applications. And I don't say that to downgrade the importance of theology because I believe theology is an important discipline in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, but so is living out what we then believe. And when we think theologically, we want to follow it up with what does it actually look like in my day-to-day life to do this? I like to call it the Tuesday test. Theology isn't just something for Sunday mornings that we sit in this room uh, and debate. It's for Tuesdays. It's for when you're at the office. It's for when you're in the classroom. It's for when you're making pancakes for a fussy three-year-old. It's for when you're at Fred Meyer's and so on and so on. Why does Romans matter in my everyday life? Because... We see if, if what Paul has already told us, so pointing back to the previous 18 weeks, if apart from God, no one is righteousness, if God's wrath is real, if I am saved by grace and not by works, if I can live life through the spirit, if God is truly sovereign over the story of humanity as well as my individual life, all those truths, well, then what? And Paul turns the corner here and starts to flesh out some of these questions. If you have your Bible, uh, we're going to start in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And Paul says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the first thing uh, that we see this morning, uh, Paul's going to tell us, Christians should not be conformed, but instead they should be transformed. Often when we see a a section that starts out with a a therefore, it's pointing us back to the preceding section that was right in front of it. But but in this one, Paul seems to be doing it a little bit different. He's actually pointing us all the way back to the last 11 chapters, starting in chapter one of Romans. And he's sort of saying, if all this is true, if, if what we as a church body have covered for 18 weeks, if all this is true, then it is vital for Christians to not our lo- let ourselves be conformed by the patterns of this world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Uh, this word conformed, it carries with it the idea of being squished into a mold um, and then coming out looking like the mold that you were pressed into. And we had some kids at our house this week, so we broke out the Play-Doh and they were conforming things all, all over the place and they came out looking like all, all sorts of things. And if we aren't intentional and careful, Paul says, the patterns of this world will mold us and shape us to see life like they see life, to value and prioritize things that they would have us value and prioritize. There are so many different ways that we are shaped by the pattern of the world around us. Uh, here's just a, a list I could, I could 
add a whole bunch more to it. Movies, TV show, news coverage, video games, music, podcasts, YouTube, books, social media, Google, and the internet, your family, your coworkers, your classmates, your teammates, and so on, and so on, and so on. There are so many influences pouring into you and molding and shaping your life. And I would venture to guess for many of them, most of them are not drawing us closer to God. Most of them aren't pointing us in the direction of Jesus. What's the big deal? Uh, You might say, I still come to church every Sunday. Uh, I attend faithfully. Surely I am not being conformed as Paul is warning us about. And I I remember a a number that has stuck out with me that I I sort of heard when I first started doing ministry here at the church many years ago, and and it's actually a fraction, and it's 1 168th. If you look at your week, there are 168 hours in a seven-day week. And so if you come to church, that's great. Um, But that means that that if all of you are doing as a follower of Jesus Christ is one 168th of your week is being positively influenced as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as someone that's not a math genius, I, I think that's not that a lot. That's not that good, right? That doesn't sound like a lot. One 168th. If this is where you come and expect all of your growth to occur and shaping to happen, are we really aware of how much that other 167 hours are influencing us? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a podcast guy. It's one of my regular forms uh, of media uh, intake. And I was listening to one the other day and a guy was talking about um, some weight that he had put on and he had been doing the Noom kind of weight management program. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And he said, since going off of it, he'd put on some weight. He said, it wasn't that the program was magic, but it, it forced me to track my intake of food. And so he's like, so I'm gonna start doing you know, that again. And, and just kind of this acknowledgement that, that, that we do things thoughtlessly without necessarily always seeing their impact. And food can certainly be that for some of us. But I think for the rest of us, what is our media intake? What is our media consumption? I dare you to track it. What have you watched on TV in the past week? What apps have you spent time on? Does your phone give you a little report at the end of the week or end of the month telling you how much you use certain apps? Do you even want to know the answer to that question? I will tell you, if you have an app that is, is sort of your go-to default uh, app, if you want to mess with yourself and prove how addicted you truly are, move the app on your home screen because <laughs> your thumb knows where it is because you've trained it. And so you're like, wait a minute, my phone's broken. No, you moved the app. Are you addict? Like, <laughs> Which websites do you frequent? What are the influences that are conforming you, shaping you into the patterns of this world. So a little bit of the world's influence creeps into my life. It's, it's really not that big of a deal, right? I was talking with an engaged couple uh, the other day, and we were uh, discussing a sermon that I had them listen to, and they were comparing the, the biblical understanding of marriage versus the modern cultural understanding of what marriage is. And, and the reality was these two views could not be more polar opposite and far apart. See, our modern culture preaches a romantic love where love is this feeling, and marriage is more of this a transaction, and 
Well, what can you give to me? And when marriage stops meeting my needs and my wants, and when I'm no longer experiencing the euphoric feeling of being in love, well, it must be that marriage is the problem. Swim in our cultural soup for any length of time, and these messages are easy to adopt. Now contrast that with biblical covenant marriage. And as, we're, as we see marriage described in the Bible, it's others-focused. It's focused on giving of ourselves for the benefit of others. It's rooted in a covenant, and we recognize that because of that covenant and not the feeling of love, it is not our love that sustains our marriage, but it is our marriage that actually sustains our love. See how that is drastically opposed to the definition of love and marriage that we see in our culture? So I ask you, which of those two marriages are you hearing on a regular basis? Now, we could go down a whole list of topics and do this one by one and go, here's what the world says and here's what the Bible says. But if our influence against that is 1 168th, the odds are not very good for your spiritual growth. I had a good friend um, that summed up this verse in, in this way. Garbage in, garbage out. Simple as that. Now, there's a really cool reality about the way that God has made us. We can change. The, the way our brains work and our minds work can change. That's why Paul can give us the instruction, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What your brain is right now, how it functions is not what it has to be in the future. Neuroscience has, has taught us about something called neuroplasticity, the idea that your brain can change over time. It has the, the ability to change positively or negative, but, but change is possible. So Paul tells us what we put in our mind changes us, impacts us, influences us, benefits us, or harms us. And so he gives this instruction elsewhere in Scripture. He says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And we want to put the right kinds of things in front of us and inside of us. We want to focus on things that help build us up and don't destroy us. It, it disciples us and helps us to shape how we think to live fully into the ways that are more and more pleasing to God. If your intake, if your consumption went through an audit, what changes would they recommend? Would they suggest cutting back more of something or removing other things outright? What would they recommend that you add back into it? What would they recommend that you add more of? What would it take to start the progress and the process of renewing your mind? Uh, and another, you know, kind of this is a little side note, but I think it's an important one to catch as we go through this uh, section in verse 2. And uh, these opening two verses is the idea that, that worship describes a lot more than just singing together on a Sunday morning. Uh, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. For many of us within the church, we mostly associate the idea of worship as something that we do when we sing together on a Sunday morning, something we just concluded prior uh, to me uh, coming up here and something that we'll do again at the end. That's worship. And while that is certainly an element of worship, that alone is a very anemic understanding of what God calls us to with worship. So here in verse one, he says, offer your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. See, what you do with your body, your physical body, your physical structure is part of how you worship God. And that occurs every day and not just on Sunday morning, right? Ethan, when we get ready and prepared to give back to God based on his generosity to us, reminds us the act of giving back to God financially is an act of worship. That's not singing, Serving and how we spend our time and what we do with the, the, the time that we have using our physical bodies to bless and love others is a daily act of worship. Paul does not let us think that worship is just singing, but instead calls us to worship in a variety of ways all throughout our week. Continuing on, Romans 12, picking up in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The takeaway uh, from this section is Christians have a responsibility to be a part of the family of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, if what you have heard so far in Romans from Paul is true for you, you are instructed and called to be a part of the family of God. Now, if you're here um, today, like I said earlier, glad that you have came. I think you picked a good place to be, and I hope that you feel spiritually nourished and encouraged. But, but also our goal here is to push you into a fuller understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Paul is writing this section under the assumption that participation in the local church goes much deeper than just showing up on Sunday morning for 60 minutes. You were designed by God to be a contributor in the body of Christ that we call the local church. Now, we've covered this in the past, so I won't do a, a total deep dive in on, on spiritual gifts, but here that's what Paul's talking about, our spiritual gifts. If you want to follow up and do a little work on, on your own this week, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Paul goes into a, a little more depth, gives some longer lists of, of some different spiritual gifts. But the way that they work is that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a Christian, God gives you a spiritual gift, maybe multiple spiritual gifts to contribute to the church and Christian ministry here in our local community and around the world. And the reality is no one person has all of them. So that as a church, we work in a way that is dependent on one another to function wholly and completely. And Paul here is not giving an exhaustive list. He gives longer ones elsewhere. Um, but he's sort of giving samples of, if you have a gift, use it. If you've got this gift, you should be using it. If you have that gift, you should be using it. If you have that gift, you should be using it. He's saying that whatever gift you have, the body of Christ, the local church is counting on you to use it for the benefit and the blessing of others. And you need to be in the local church to be edified, built up by the gifts of others. And you need to be in the local church because others need to be built up by you as you use your gifts for their blessing. And I did want to highlight, uh, I think there are, are sort of three um, Three hindrances uh, that can get in the way of us using uh, our spiritual gifts. Uh, um, 
the way that God has intended us to, to work with them together. Uh, I'll say this, I think the first hurdle for many people is selfishness. There are not a lot of ways to use your spiritual gifts that don't take time and don't take sacrifice. I think it is getting less and less common for people to be willing to give up their time to serve others within their church and in a variety of ways. I heard a, an interesting conversation a, a while back, uh, and they were highlighting how the, the baby boomer generation was a volunteering generation. It, speaking broadly, it was just sort of part of their DNA as a group. They served generously, gave of their time generously, were quick to volunteer and quick to help out. But the reality is the generations that have followed after have not picked up that same idea, that same value of generous serving. And churches and other you know, volunteer-dependent organizations are, are sort of walking towards a volunteer cliff as, as we have less and less of this wonderful baby boomer generation leading through service and, and volunteering of their time so generously. And we call the next generation to, to serve and, and do it in ways even if it's costly. A second hurdle to using your gifts uh, is to undervalue uh, what you are and how God has made you. The related third hurdle is to overvalue somebody else's gift and how God has gifted them. Paul warns us not to overvalue ourselves and not to undervalue ourselves either. Verse three, he says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul tells us, think of yourself with, with sober judgment. We need to perform an honest evaluation when it comes to our spiritual gifts. If you believe the body metaphor, we need to see that every element of our body is needed to work together. And sometimes you don't know how vital something is until it's missing. Paul gives uh, a little you know, shotgun list, uh, mentions prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing mercy. And, and we as a church need these gifts and the other gifts working in coordination to fully function as the local church body that we are intended to be. I remember uh, growing up, I played sports and, and you would stretch before your, your sports match. And uh, I remember they always like, stretch your hip flexor. And I remember being like, I don't know what that is, but everybody's doing this. So I'm doing this, Right. And, and I just, for years, like, yep, I'm stretching my hip flexor, and I think it's made up, but I don't want to call it out. But then all of a sudden, one time, I was, uh, I was in training, and I pulled my hip flexor. And oh my goodness, I was wrecked for a month. I could hardly lift my leg. I didn't know this one thing was like, might be the most important part of your body. And I didn't know until I heard it. And now I couldn't walk and I was hobbling. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Did you tear it or something? I'm like, I have a hip flexor, ouchie. <laughs> and it wasn't as impressive as I was hoping. Here's what I'm saying, other than just to give you a good medical history of my sporting career, is you might be the hip flexor of the church. And without you, we are a hobbled church and we can't get around and we can't do what we think we should be able to do because you have a gift that you haven't shared with us and we need us all working together to be fully functioning and accomplish what we need to accomplish. Don't undervalue how God has made you and your gifting and your contribution to the church community. And the flip side is don't overvalue gifts that you see in other people. 
Because see, Paul highlights not all have the same function. So some of us, you might like, well, I want that gift and I want a gift that brings me more prestige or I want a gift that brings me more authority or more influence. And Jesus gives us this parable where where people are, are given and they are to use what they have been given to the fullest of its ability. And that is applicable when we think about our spiritual gifts. Don't take your spiritual ball and go home just because you don't get to serve in the role that you think that you should or somebody else gets a role that you wish that you had. If what we've set up to this point is true in in the first 11 chapters of Romans, if God is in control, he has gifted you exactly how he has intended to for his glory, for your edification, and for the building up of the local church. As we work through this section in in Paul, here's a a truth that I need to be reminded of, so I'm guessing some of you in this room would benefit from this reminder as well. There is no such thing as an individual Christian living out their faith in isolation. You cannot read this section in Romans, and I could point to a lot of other places, and, and conclude that you were designed to function best alone. Now, people may drive you crazy. They drive me crazy too. That's a natural conclusion. You're not wrong. But we are called to live in community with one another. And according to the scriptures, it is not optional. Now, if you're sitting next to an introvert right now, if you want to just glance over and give them the side eye, make them squirm a little bit, um, I can harass introverts because I myself am an incredible introvert. And I'll tell that to people, and they're like, Mark, you can't be an introvert. You speak publicly as a part of your job, and you work with large groups of teenagers. Surely you can't be an introvert, which I reply, yes, I can. My natural desire is to live in my basement and never come out, okay? I have dreams someday of working a remote job and living in my basement and getting groceries delivered uh, to my house, and Lord willing, we're waiting, but that hasn't happened yet, but... I cannot read the Bible and conclude that that is what God has for me. I cannot isolate and still carry out the various one another's that we find throughout the Bible. Around 50-ish times in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles tell us to feel, say, or do something to one another. We are to care for one another, bear with one another, honor one another, do good to one another, forgive one another. And then there's just the overarching, most repeated, love one another. The words of Jesus, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. That will be your distinctive mark if you have love for one another. While I would often rather sit out, it turns out the body of Christ needs me. While you would rather often sit out, it turns out the body of Christ needs you too. My participation benefits me and my participation benefits others. Your participation benefits you and your participation benefits others. The Bible does not allow for a privatized Christian life lived in isolation because we are called regularly and faithfully to be loving one another. And so we need to do it. Verse nine, continuing on. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. 
Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The last uh, point this morning that we're going to hit is, is Christians have a responsibility to love sincerely. Christians have a responsibility to love others sincerely. And, and Paul is, is sort of, this is a shotgun blast of instruction uh, here. He gives us just a little bit of everything. In verses 9 through 21, I counted 22 different things we are supposed to do if we consider ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, but they all root back to what we see here in verse 9, that we are to love sincerely. And we are instructed, we see instructions here that we are to work within the, the body of the local church. And we are also to extend outside the walls and into the communities and schools and workplaces where we find ourselves. And our love is to take on a variety of different facets as you see this long list. And the funny thing that kind of came to my mind as I was reading uh, through Paul's list, it feels like when you take your car in for an inspection and they come back with a list of the 54 things that they inspected on your car, and I'm completely lost when it comes to the car. My first thought is always, I didn't know there were 54 things under there to look at. So that was interesting and, and new to me. For me, cars are you turn the key and magic happens and you pray the magic doesn't run out before you get to your destination. And if not, I'll call you because I need a ride. But Paul gives them this 22-point inspection in this section on their ability and desire to show love to one another. And so my question is, if this was your love inspection, how would you do? And here's just some of what Paul says. These are some of the points on the inspection. Where to hate evil, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Share with the Lord's people in need. Verse 13, practice hospitality. I like the ESV translation a little better. Seek to show hospitality, pursue it, seek it out. Uh, verse 16, we're to live in harmony. 16, do not be proud. Do not repay evil with evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. How's your inspection going? Would you pass? What encouraged me as, as I sort of wrestled through these this week, as I was looking for themes to tie them together and uh, trying to make sense of, of all of what Paul is saying here, it is not a list of abilities. It's mostly a list of attitudes, so God calls us to be willing to love others sincerely without focusing necessarily on our aptitude. He says, be willing to love sincerely in a variety of ways. Because in a sinful and broken world, as Paul has told us throughout Romans, loving people around us is going to need to take a lot of forms and we're going to need to adapt. So we can't just say, do it one way. He's got to say, do it 22 different ways because you're going to encounter all of these and it's not just love that is directed at those that love you back reciprocally. We can't just love people that, that love us back. We are also called in this section to love people that are in opposition to us. 
You might be thinking, geez, Paul, take it easy. That's a lot. And then you know that if you know your Bible, Paul's actually pointing us back to the, to the words of Jesus. So if this passage frustrates you, go argue it out with Jesus. But in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this. You've heard it said, love your enemies and hate, or sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Have you ever actually read Jesus as if he was actually serious about the stuff that he said? It is incredibly terrifying because he says some pretty radical things about what we as his followers are to do in the places that he has placed us. But if what we find in the first 11 chapters of Roman is true about us, about Jesus, about grace, about salvation, well, then how can we not try to live out the practical part that we see in Romans 12? Concluding thoughts, in what ways are you being conformed? What do you need to do to be transformed in God-honoring ways? And what ways has God designed you to be a part of his body, the local church? How were you gifted? What role were you intended to play? What does sincere love look like in your life? What's one of these that, that we talked about that you could grow in this week? Now, we listed off 22. 22 changes is in a week. That's hard. But what is one thing that you could do to grow in your willingness and your attitude towards loving others? What could you do in response to what God has done for you? And does your love extend outside of the people that we meet here in this building? Jesus was a notorious friend of sinners and I'm sad to think far too many Christians today have gotten scared of being like Jesus. I hope and I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ has left a distinctive mark on who you are and that the world around you interacts with you and can see it because you know what Romans 1 through 11 says, so you're gonna live it out as we're told in Romans 12 and so on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, your truth is hard. Uh, we're told it cuts to the marrow, to the, to the very inner core of us. And so, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do your work, that your Holy Spirit would work within uh, us to, to bring these truths home, to help us grow where we need to grow, to change where we need to change, to stop what we need to stop, to start what we need to start, to love who we need to love. Give us eyes to see what you're calling us to and what you would have us do for your glory because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.